From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. States of emergency have been declared statewide and locally. The coronavirus continues its spread. We'll talk with L.A. County's top public health official who has the latest. With Elizabeth Warren's exit this morning from the presidential race, we'll also consider the likely effects on the two remaining major candidates. How much of Warren's support was ideological, with those voters likely choosing Bernie Sanders, and how much was related to non-ideological factors that might lead some of her fans to go with Joe Biden. We'll take a look at those and many more topics this morning on Air Talk, right after NPR News. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So much news to talk about. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday uh, saying, uh, you know, what What are you talking about on the show? It's as usual, politics every day. And now, of course, we have coronavirus. Uh, never at a loss for important topics to take on on Air Talk. We begin with the latest on coronavirus with Los Angeles Times reporter Anita Chabrier joining us to talk not just about the first fatality announced yesterday in California and the states of emergency statewide and in local jurisdictions, but also concerns about a Princess cruise ship which is off of San Francisco while a number of passengers are being tested for COVID-19, the coronavirus that is spreading. Anita Chabrier, good to have you with us again on AirTalk. First of all, what can you tell us about the status of this uh, cruise ship, the Grand Princess? Well, thanks for having me on, Larry. What we know right now is that the boat is is still a little ways out from San Francisco, but I communicated with a passenger on board about 10 minutes ago, and as of now, the testing kits have not arrived, but a helicopter is expected to bring them within the next hour. We know that about 100 people or less than 100 people will be tested for the virus. And what we understand is that those are 62 people who were that includes 62 people who were on the previous cruise where the fatality was said to have um, contracted to the disease. The, the man from Placer who has passed away. So right now, everyone's saying they're in good spirits on the ship or the folks that I've talked to, but they are just in this limbo while these testing kits arrive and and are tested. We're talking with L.A. Times reporter Anita Chabrier, and we'll continue with her, but also joining us, the director of Los Angeles County's Department of Public Health, Barbara Ferrer. Uh, Thank you for for being with us. Let's talk first about uh, the cruise ship and the testing. Once people are tested, how long is it taking to get test results on COVID-19? You know, I think it depends on on who's doing the testing and where the samples are being sent. Um, You know, I know that here in L.A. County, we now have local capacity uh, with our own public health lab. We're one of 10 uh, public health labs in uh, California that's now able to do the testing. So obviously our turnaround time is quicker because we're not shipping samples all the way to Atlanta and then waiting for Atlanta to run the tests and then getting back to us. 
Um, it still, on average, takes uh, one to two days, uh, depending on you know whether the sample you get is uh, is uh, the correct you know is, has been correctly corrected um, collected, so you don't have to go back and get another sample. Uh, but in general, you know, we can run the test uh, and get results back fairly quickly. Now, in terms of the folks on on the cruise ship, I'm not really sure where their samples are being sent. And again, um, there are lots of people being tested at the same time. But I would imagine that within a couple of days, everybody will have their test results. Yeah, Nita's saying they don't, they don't even have the tests uh, on the ship quite yet. Uh, how concerned should we as members of the public be when we hear about the increasing number of cases? You know, I, I think um, because this is a new virus, everyone is going to have concern. And uh, depending on your experiences, you know, do you have friends or family in, in mainland China and you've seen the devastation there? depends on, on how worried you might be. Um, I think one thing that's different in the United States is that we've had a lot more time to prepare and we've had a lot more time to really explain uh, to all of our residents, you know, what are steps that everyone can take to protect themselves from a new circulating virus and all of the other respiratory illnesses that are circulating at this time in our communities. And that's helpful. You know, this virus, like all other uh, respiratory uh, viruses, is transmitted primarily from sick people to well people. So anything that we do that actually uh, has uh, less sick people circulating uh, in the public spaces is going to help us reduce people's exposure to novel coronavirus. You know, our main message in terms of protections that people can reasonably take uh, is if you are sick, even with mild illness, if your children are sick, even with mild illness, this is not the time to take that Tylenol or that Advil and kind of buck up and, you know, head out the door. This is the time to actually stay home until you are fever-free for at least 24 hours without any medication. Uh, and if a lot of people would actually take that advice and stay home, we would have less disease circulating. Uh, you know, so so there are things that all of us can do, and, and employers need to help with that. Uh, you know, employers need to make it easy for sick people to stay home. They need to not penalize sick people when they're staying home. You know, and at this point, we're also asking that, you know, please uh, flex your policies and don't require people with mild illness to go to the doctor to get that doctor's note so that they can return to work. You know, we really can't afford right now to either be sending people with mild illness into places where people are, are much more sick, and we can't afford to tie up our clinical staff with uh, people who actually don't need to be. You're setting the table beautifully for our upcoming segment in which we're going to talk about um, what are the rights of employees when it comes to refusing assignments they think might put them at risk, and we're going to talk with an employment law specialist on that. Uh, We're talking with Barbara Ferrer, Director, L.A. County Department of Public Health. We hear from public health officials this term, uh, no known public exposures. What does that mean? That, you know, I think that's a great question. Um, what it really means is when we identify a person who's positive, the first thing we do is we take a very detailed history of where that person has been and who they've been in contact with. Uh, and one thing we do know about this virus is 
uh, it, it is spread primarily through very close contact. And we, we define close contact as being within six feet of a person for 10 minutes or more for the general public. So we look to find everybody, you know, uh, tell, tell us exactly what you did every hour. And we'll repeat the history a couple of times with folks. And we'll get a line list of everybody that they know that's visited them at home, that they had dinner with, that they went to someone's house with, uh, that they rode in a car with, and, and we'll get that list. So those are what we call known contacts. And we contact every single person on that list, and they will be asked to, to quarantine for up to 14 days because they've had a known exposure to a person who was, in fact, infected with novel coronavirus. So they have to quarantine for up to 14 days from their exposure, and they're in touch with us, and we're in touch with them to make sure they're not developing signs and symptoms. There are situations where someone, for example, uh, rides on a train, and they ride on a train every day. They go to work on the train. They come home on the train. And people are sitting next to them in, fairly, in that same close proximity, and they're on that train for, every, for an hour in the morning and an hour every evening. We have no idea who they sat next to, and they have no idea who they sat next to. So who was within that six-foot radius, because that's now a 60-minute uh, exposure, we don't know. That's what we would call a public exposure, and the best we can do is send out an advisory that says, if you were on the train, uh, you know, at this point, you know, going, you know, this is the train, this is the time it left. If you were there within this hour, you may have had an exposure. Please monitor yourself for signs and symptoms of the disease. Again, not a known contact because we don't have a list of the people, but there could have been a possible exposure. And, uh, you know, folks here in L.A. County are very familiar with this uh, because we do similar uh, announcements, for example, with measles, you know, and measles is way more contagious uh, than novel coronavirus because it's airborne. But oftentimes we we just need to say, you know, if you were at a restaurant on this date between this time period, you may have had an exposure. Please monitor yourself for signs and symptoms. We're talking with uh, Barbara Ferrer, Director, L.A. County Department of Public Health, who's going to be joining us on a daily basis to brief us on the very latest with the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. And just final question before I, I let you go, and, and we'll get, get back to this in the coming days. But um, what is the threshold public health officials are looking at for requesting that public events be canceled. We're looking at Italy with these big uh, soccer games. They're going to be played in front of empty stadiums because, of course, they have so many diagnosed cases there. Um, What's taken into account when issuing that advice? I think you I think you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned what's really sort of driving that advice is, is how many cases do you have and where did those cases originate? Um, so when you know that a case or a set of cases, a cluster of cases, you can really easily identify the source. You may be able to just do some limited, uh, what we call social distancing measures. For example, it's in one school, you don't have to close all the schools, you may be able to just close that one school. Uh, but if you had enough what we call community transmission, these are, place, these are cases where we actually can't identify uh, the source of the infection. Uh, if you had enough of that, you would actually think of, of taking similar steps here, you know, asking uh, event venues to either cancel or modify uh, what they're doing. I, I think uh, we've all uh, been talking, obviously, with 
all of our large event venues here in L.A. County to prepare them for what we hope we never have to do. And we hope we don't have, you know, an outbreak that's so significant with so much community transmission that we take these steps. But this is the time to prepare for that. I mean, we don't want to be trying to figure out how we do these take these actions, you know, when we need to take the actions. So everybody is on alert at this point about making sure you have your plans in place for how you would be able to communicate uh, modifications, for example, playing uh, sports games without without any spectators, uh, in, in, you know, uh, introducing more social distancing at events. Um, you know, one of the, one of the um, directives we're going to be issuing today is uh, for people who are spectators at the marathon, we are going to be recommending, you know, first of all, uh, people who are sick really can't attend. If you've got a cold and a cough, productive cough, you're running a fever, please don't attend. Uh, we're asking people to socially distance. Try to keep six feet between you and people you don't know. Avoid the handshake. Don't share water bottles. Uh, don't share food. Um, you know, uh, we want people to still continue to be able to enjoy uh, the marathon. At this point, we have no known cases of community transmission uh, in L.A. County. But given that there are travelers that are coming from all over the world for for this event, uh, we've been working with the organizers so that they're preparing their runners to take reasonable actions. Uh, but we're also going to work to let spectators know, you know, this is not the time to sort of be in a close-packed crowd with people you don't know. Barbara Ferrer, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, we won't talk with you tomorrow as we're doing a special post-election uh, live event here in our Crawford Family Forum, but Monday we'll look forward to talking with you next on Air Talk. Appreciate okay, it. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, the opportunity, and thanks for covering the story so well. We appreciate it. L.A. County Department of Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer with us on Air Talk, as is L.A. Times reporter Anita Chabrier, who's been closely covering the coronavirus, uh, what's happening with the Grand Princess cruise ship off the coast at San Francisco while they test passengers on that ship to determine if uh, they have contracted the coronavirus. Uh, Anita, I wanted to ask you as well about... Um, the whole in fact i'll play this clip this this was president trump um was on the phone with fox news's sean hannity last evening and uh president trump was responding to the 3.4% global death rate that's been cited for the virus well i think the 3.4% is really a false number now this is just my hunch and uh, but based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this, because a lot of people will have this and it's very mild. Uh, they'll get better very rapidly. They don't even see a doctor. They don't even call a doctor. Well, the president's been criticized for freelancing there and, and uh, you know, speculating. But, Anita, uh, I have heard this issue raised that there may be so many mild um, silent cases that we don't have a pretty good handle on the lethality of COVID-19. What, what have you been able to find out in your reporting? Well, I, I think Trump is actually correct on this one. So what I'm hearing uh, across the board with the experts that I've talked to is that, number one, we don't know. There's a ton we do not know about this virus. But that 3.4 number comes out of only looking at cases that were basically treated in medical facilities in China. So you had to be sick enough to make it to the doctor 
for it to be counted within that rate. And that gives a, a false high or could give a false high because there could be tons of people who had it but just never got so sick that they went to the doctor. And if they were included, there would be fewer fatalities overall. So that's really a great debate right now within the um, public health and within the medical profession is once we are able to do a better overall population study on this, will that rate come down? And most experts think it will probably come down. But even if, and I'm just pulling a number out of the air here, even if it's 1% instead of 3.4, that's still many, many times what a typical flu's death rate would be. That is correct. And it 1% would be devastating. 1%, you know, is, is a huge number globally, and we don't know how far this is going to spread. Uh, but I also think it's important to, to remember that that 1% would not be spread evenly across the population, because this virus really does hit elderly people and people with uh, conditions that affect their heart or their lungs much, much harder uh, whereas populations like kids, interestingly, kids really are not dying from this virus. So whatever the death rate or the fatality rate does turn out to be, it's not going to be evenly distributed uh, amongst the population. I think there was a doctor testifying before Congress, I think it was this morning, who referred to this as the angel of death for elderly patients, a pretty pretty stark language. It is clearly hitting elderly patients the hardest. And my understanding of that is, is because your immune system just declines as you get older, so you're more susceptible. But also we're looking at places like nursing homes, which is where we've seen a, a lot of the fatalities so far. And that really brings with it the, the double whammy of being in a confined system where, uh, you know, there's maybe not the everyone's touching the same things and breathing the same air along with being elderly. So you're really, you're, you're seeing two things at play there at the same time, both age and that confined system. Can you briefly, before I let you go, need to talk about what's happening in China? Because it does appear there's some good news there that uh, the rate of cases seems to be declining. Yes. Uh, you know, I think, what I'm hearing everyone say is that the measures that they put in place really have had some effect there. I actually had one expert this morning tell me we should be thanking China for for the extreme measures it has gone to. But I think that that also has to be kept in some perspective. What I've been told by some of the experts is that slowed the advance of the disease, but it did not uh, stop it. So, so once it passed into other countries, it really is incumbent upon each country that gets it uh, to keep it in check because eventually it spreads beyond its borders and it keeps going. Anita, thank you so much. Really appreciate your joining us today. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot, if you're willing, in the in the days and weeks to come. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank Los, you. Los Angeles Times reporter Anita Chabrier, who's been closely following the coronavirus, states of emergency declared for the state of California, locally as well, Los Angeles and Orange Counties, and the local public health departments in cities like Long Beach and Pasadena. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC, coming up in just one minute. We'll talk about the rights of employees to decline assignments or to stay home without a doctor's note, other things that come into play when you've got an employer who wants employees to work and employees concerned about potential exposure to the virus. We'll be back in 60 seconds. 
You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I was just mentioning to Dr. Ferrer about our special broadcast tomorrow, and I'm shocked that there are still seats available. I thought once we mentioned this, it would be it would be gone quickly and filled. So you still have a chance, but I'd act fast because it's going to be the capacity. Tomorrow morning at 10, it's post-California primary, post-Super Tuesday analysis with an all-star group of political scientists. Libby Dankman, our politics reporter, is with me as well. It's a live hour of air talk, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning here at our Crawford Family Forum. You can RSVP. It's totally free, but kpecc.org slash in person. Let us know you're coming so we can plan for your arrival. Going to be a terrific hour of conversation and there'll be bonus time for members of the audience in the Crawford to ask questions of our political scientists. Those will not be broadcast, those audience questions. So you want to be a part of that. Uh, at least a few folks who have a chance to have questions answered tomorrow morning at 10, kpcc.org slash in person. Well, as I mentioned before the break, we're going to talk about the law now and a chance for you if you have specific questions about employee rights when it comes to protection from the coronavirus. We're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Now, our attorney guest can't give specific legal advice. It's very generalized, as we always say, when we have a, a legal expert joining us. But it's a chance if you work in a field where, you know, public gatherings are a part of your work, travel is a part of your work, uh, maybe it's particularly challenging to work from home, like to uh, get into some of these issues when it comes to employee rights around uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus. With me is Jane Cow employment attorney and human resources consultant with the firm HR Law in San Francisco. Ms. Cow, thank you for being with us. Um, so let's talk just sort of sort of generally here um, about employee rights. What sorts of rights do people have if they perceive something they're assigned to do could put them at risk of illness? Um, it, 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 do you mean travel somewhere to a region? That- I'm just talking general. If you want to get into specifics, we can. But I was going to start with sort of general. If someone perceives there's threat. Is there any sort of inherent right an employee has to avoid an assignment that they perceive puts them at physical risk? Yeah, and I, and I think the devil's in the details, which is why I had asked, um, you know, what kind of risk? Uh, travel or to be... Let's start with travel. Okay, so let's say that's the assignment. You're asked to go somewhere where you perceive you're either in transit or on location going to be at heightened risk of the virus. What right do you have to refuse the assignment? Uh, if, if you're talking about, I think if you're talking about places that the Centers for Disease Control has um, warned uh, to be places where there has been an outbreak, um, and the employee says, look, this is a reasonable fare, um, you know, th- there's widespread sustained transmission, and there's restrictions on travel to, to places like in Wuhan, China, or Iran, Italy, and South Korea, um, and, you know, I, I don't want to go there. I think the employer can explore alternatives. Can we hold a meeting, um, you know, via video, video conferencing? Can we meet elsewhere in the world? Um, you know, uh, if, if there's a reasonable risk 
of harm, um, the employer needs to take some necessary precautions to protect the health and safety of of all of its employees. But if the employee generally just has generalized anxiety, says, I don't, I don't want to come into work, uh, I'm fearful of leaving my home, um, you know, that's a whole different story. Let's say that you've got an employee who um, is, it, you know, it's a public event business, let's say. And so these are gatherings of people and don't necessarily know what the history is, where the people have been, whatever. Um, does an employee have the right to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to work uh, gatherings uh, in this interim period and, and still keep uh, that person, keep his or her job? Uh, in some cases, the employer could say, listen, if you're not going to come into work and for personal reasons, then you, you, you need to use up your vacation or personal time off, your PTO time off or a floating holiday. Um, and then once that gets exhausted, you, you're not going to get paid for your time off because it's for personal reasons and it's not because of lack of work. Um, and if their position is mission critical um, to, to the event um, and they they suddenly decide uh, it's a no-show, I mean, the employer could take disciplinary action as they would in any other circumstance. If there isn't, you know, a, a, a reasonable, rational threat to the health and safety of the employee, um, <clears throat> All right. Uh, so also wanted to ask you about um, if if an employer orders someone to stay home from work uh, and and the employee doesn't do that, doesn't believe that he or she can, you know, effectively work from home or maybe they don't have a spot to work from home. What sort of rights do they have, if any, to be compelled to work from home? What, what sort of rights do, do, does the employee have if the employer compels them to work from home? Is that, is that your question? Yeah. yeah. Can, you ref, can you refuse to work from home if you're compelled? Well, if the employer um, can't just say to people, you know, in areas where there hasn't been an outbreak. In Omaha, Nebraska, listen, we're fearful that people are going to contract this. But if it's been in an area where the, there's there's been a widespread outbreak, and there's a reasonable fear, uh, you know, in the workplace or in the community, um, we're going to ask people to work from home um, as a necessary safety precaution. Um, and where is the employee going to go if the the plant shuts down or the the office, you know, work, uh, shuts down and people are telecommuting? So. You know, uh, I'm not sure um, where that employee would go. Usually it's the opposite situation where the employee wants to stay home and work and not come in because they're fearful. Um, that That's far more common, I think, than where the employer compels people to tele, telework. All right, Jane Cow, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. She's employment attorney and human resources consultant with the San Francisco-based firm HR Law. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Editor Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the presidential race this morning. She spoke with reporters outside her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight for the hardworking folks across this country who have gotten the short end of the stick over and over. 
That's been the fight of my life, and it will continue to be so. She was asked if she would be making an endorsement today. Uh, not today. Not today. I need some space around this, and I and want to take a little time to think a little more. I've been, I've been spending a lot of time right now on the question of suspending and also making sure that this works as best we can. She also had a poignant comment about what was most difficult for her in suspending her campaign was in what that represents to young women and girls as she was the lone remaining major woman candidate in the race, leaving this to two men, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. But she didn't rule out making an endorsement sometime in the future. Joining us is NPR senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk, Ron Elving. Ron, thank you for being with us after the uh, lackluster showing that she had on Super Tuesday. This was expected. Um, but is there expectation that at some point when it will be meaningful to one of the two remaining major candidates that she will endorse? There is that expectation, and surely it would be meaningful to either of them for certain. And one would think that it would be particularly meaningful to Bernie Sanders because the two of them have shared similar views on a number of issues. And of course, they were careful not to criticize each other by and large in the debates, even after uh, many weeks of tension between their campaigns. Uh, There was that little dust up over whether or not Bernie had ever told her that he didn't think a woman could beat Donald Trump. Uh, She said he did. He said he hadn't. Uh, But with that exception, they really had uh, kept the gloves on with each other and been kind to each other. So I'm sure the Sanders people are expecting her to come his way at some juncture, but that's not clear yet. Well, and and also... We've been hearing from insiders, and you'd be much more aware of this than than me, but that there was there was some uh, definite uh, upset within the Warren camp over what they felt were hostile remarks coming from supporters of Sanders and and that there was a bit of bad blood between the campaigns, if not between the candidates. That's right. And I think there have been, if you follow Twitter, there have been a lot of uh, warring comments back and forth between some of the supporters of those candidates over time. Some of Bernie Sanders' supporters, and let's say it's probably a very small minority, very, very small fraction, have been rough on Twitter and other social media, particularly on uh, Hillary Clinton back in 2016, but on some of the other women candidates this time around and have been perceived as being sexist. Again, a small, small fraction. Nonetheless, uh, some of Warren's supporters have been upset that Bernie Sanders did not uh, denounce that kind of activity more explicitly. He has disowned it. He has said that does not speak for him, but they would like to have seen him do more. So that remains as something of an irritant uh, between the campaigns, despite how close they have been on ideological matters. How much help would an endorsement give? I mean, it, it, it seems to me that Elizabeth Warren had people that supported her for ideological policy reasons who would be more apt to switch to Bernie Sanders, but that she also attracted support from people who felt a personal connection to her and who liked the fact that uh, here's a policy wonk, a woman, a terrific debater, that there were all these other factors to her credit that they saw beyond ideological ones. Those folks, some of them, could potentially go to Biden. 
Yes, they could potentially go in any number of directions, but there don't seem to be but two directions that could actually lead to a nominee at this point. And, you know, it, it does seem it does seem a little disappointing, I think, from any perspective, uh, that the field that was two dozen is now two white guys who are 78. And you would think that she might have wanted to stick around just to provide some variety and some of that sensational debate performance that we've been seeing on March 15th and on some of the other upcoming dates. If we're going to continue to have debates, it would be nice to have Elizabeth Warren in them, and it would be nice to have a little more diversity in the field. So that's one uh, potential source of disappointment for a lot of observers. And another one, I think, is that Elizabeth Warren might have chosen to stay in, get 15% and delegate worthiness uh, in a number of the upcoming states. You know, we still have seven of the top 10 most populous states that haven't had a primary or caucus yet. Yeah, California has, and Texas has, North Carolina, but we've got New York to go. We've got Florida to go. And there are a lot of places where Elizabeth Warren could have gotten 15% and gotten a nice chunk of delegates. If she went to Milwaukee in July with a couple hundred delegates, she might very well be in a position to decide who got the nomination. We have the next Democratic debate coming up March 15th. It's a Sunday in Phoenix, and it's going to be one-on-one Sanders and Biden. Yet, what are you going to be looking for in that debate when you just have, you know, two on stage? Probably the biggest question people are going to be asking is whether or not um, Bernie Sanders uh, goes after Joe Biden in a really aggressive way. Uh, uh, Joe Biden has vulnerabilities. There have been a number of votes he's cast in a very long political career. There have been things that he has said. But also there is this issue of whether or not he is uh, fully up to the job at this point. Maybe when he first ran for president in 1987-88 period of time, uh, he seemed like kind of a young and vigorous fellow. Maybe he doesn't seem quite as young and vigorous today. Uh, Of course, he ran also in 2008. And he has 78 and sometimes seems to be showing it. Seems sometimes to have a little bit of trouble coming up with the words he wants to say and hesitates to do that. That wasn't the old Joe Biden so much, although he did have a problem uh, as a young man with stuttering. And so I think that there are questions being raised. Certainly, you will see this coming from the president and his Twitter account and from other people questioning Joe Biden's fitness. Uh, Will Bernie Sanders go after him on that issue, given his own heart attack and his own age? Will the debate be an ideological one in which they talk about issues they differ on, or will it be more of a matter of questioning each other's fitness? And of course, in the last debate, uh, or I guess it was two debates ago now, Elizabeth Warren was really the uh, the one who it seemed took um, Bloomberg down to where he didn't end up being a viable candidate after all. And I, w- I would think Joe Biden owes Elizabeth Warren quite a bit for the uh, slicing and dicing she did on Bloomberg's uh, political record. Absolutely. There's no question that she was the person who eviscerated uh, Michael Bloomberg in that first debate. Uh, She was not quite as harsh on him in the second, but she kept it up uh, when she was asked at one point to talk about how she might differ from Bernie Sanders or what criticisms she might have of Bernie Sanders, she utterly 
<laughs> rejected that invitation and rejected that question and went right back to work on Michael Moore. <laughs> uh, let's look at the, where we stand on the delegates. And I, I know because California is still being counted, much is up in the air. But so let's say hypothetically that Biden comes out of Super Tuesday with, you know, maybe 50 delegates or so ahead of Bernie Sanders. He can, of course, close that gap. Um, particularly with the big states that you're talking about, Ron. But um, is it more of a challenge for Sanders at this point, given the electorates in the states ahead? The electorate in the states ahead has some good spots for him and some not so good spots for him. Michigan coming up next Tuesday is a state that he won in 2016 and kind of shocked the world when he did that. On the other hand, some of these uh, other highly populous states that I mentioned earlier, New York, Florida, uh, uh, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, uh, also Illinois, as well as Michigan, all have rather large African-American populations with a big, big, big footprint uh, with respect to Democratic primaries. So that's a problem because he has not been doing well with that community. And we've seen we've seen Joe Biden taking upwards of 60 percent, and that may go even higher as these identifications kind of sink in a little bit. So that's going to be a problem for Bernie in the big states. But on the other hand, all those states also have a lot of the kind of people that have been turning to Bernie white, non-college educated voters, also younger voters, people under 30. And Bernie was very frank in saying he was disappointed in how much turnout there's been among some of these younger voters, people under 30. If that contingent votes bigger in some of these more populous states, that could help uh, Bernie keep, uh, keep abreast of some of the other demographics. And then finally, Latinos in a number of these states, uh, Latinos have been, particularly younger Latinos, have been gravitating towards Bernie Sanders, as we saw in California. So that could be a big plus for him in those states. We're talking with Ron Elving of NPR. Um, Want to close on this issue because it's, it's, uh, it's caused some concern. Um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer yesterday held a rally outside the Supreme Court on the steps that while justices were hearing arguments over a Louisiana abortion law that that critics of that law said could make it almost impossible uh, for an abortion to be performed in the state. Here's uh, briefly what Schumer said about the justices uh, on the case. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Now, that uh, led Chief Justice John Roberts to actually come out with a statement uh, critical of the Senate Majority Leader in personally attacking justices in that way. Then this morning on the Senate floor, Schumer addressed his comments yesterday. I should not have used the words I used yesterday. They didn't come out the way I intended to. My point was that there would be political consequences, political consequences, for President Trump and Senate Republicans if the Supreme Court, with the newly confirmed justices, stripped away a woman's right to choose. Of course, I didn't intend to to, to suggest anything other than political and public opinion consequences for the Supreme Court, and it is a gross distortion to imply otherwise. 
which is hard for me to fathom, Ron, hearing it, a gross distortion is pretty clear. Um, There's nothing about if you do this, Republicans will pay a price. If you do this, justices, the policies that you might support uh, are, are, are going to be damaged politically. And, you know, he's, he's a very sharp, very astute guy. You, you have any sort of potential explanation for why he would have said something like this? Well, he, he clearly was out of control when he said it. I mean, you can call it passion, you can call it anger, you can call it whatever you want. But somebody who, as you say, has been in public life since his early 20s, and, and Chuck Schumer was in the New York State Legislature when he was barely out of law school, uh, he should know that if you if you say you're going to pay a price or we're coming after you or something like that, it's going to be interpreted, particularly by those who don't want to be generous in their interpretation, as being some sort of personal threat, as though you were going to actually come after these two individuals or the other members of the court. And we have frequently heard Democrats, uh, you know, clutch their pearls and say, oh, you can't talk that way about Supreme Court justices when President Trump has uh, said things about members of the Supreme Court. And we have uh, seen this going back and forth between the parties in the past. It's not a good idea ever to threaten a judge, whether it's a district court judge, the way President Trump has been uh, threatening a judge on Roger Stone's case here in Washington, D.C., or whether it's a Supreme Court justice. Uh, It's just never a good idea to name them and to say anything about them paying a price when, as you have explained, what Schumer meant, and I think many of us might have figured this from the beginning, and he was very, very clear about it on the Senate floor this morning, there would be political consequences for Republicans if Roe versus Wade were overturned and if abortion were made illegal, as uh, some have said they would like to do from coast to coast. That would cost the Republican Party dearly at the polls. That's what he should have. Yeah, and it's just so strange because it's not like he's he's— He's highly competent at word usage. It's just, but as you said, you know, it may just be he just got out of control and his emotions got the best of him. But I, it was certainly a head scratcher. Thank you so much, Ron, for joining us as always. We appreciate it. And we'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Look forward to talking to you, Larry. Thank you. Thank you, Ron Elving of NPR, joining us, always providing terrific political analysis. Coming up on Air Talk, we have another terrific political analyst who, in fact, will be joining us tomorrow for our special program live in the Crawford Family Forum, 10 o'clock live hour of Air Talk. You can be there in the audience in the Crawford by RSVPing at kpcc.org slash in person. Loyola Marymount's Fernando Guerra will be with us in one minute on air talk so good to have you with us on air talk i'm larry mantle and i hope to see you tomorrow in our crawford family forum for our special live hour of air talk devoted to uh the post primary analysis of both california and the national scene we're joined now by Loyola Marymount University political scientist Fernando Guerra, uh, also professor of Chicano Latino Studies, and he directs LMU's Center for the Study of Los Angeles. He's also a member of our Southern California Public Radio Board of Trustees. Fernando, good to have you with us this morning. Um, first of all, your thoughts on uh, Elizabeth Warren's uh, suspending her campaign and who benefits from that? 
Yeah, I'm not surprised given her showing on Tuesday, finishing third in her own state, finishing third or fourth in many of the other states. Uh, not surprised at all. Um, I think Bernie uh, clearly uh, uh, benefits, but not 100 percent of Warren voters are going to go over there. You know, uh, Bernie has struggled with uh, suburban women. There were a lot of that was a large part of uh, Warren's followers. So I'm not sure that they completely go over there. And, and so it, it's a split. I, but I think it's most like a six. 60, 65% for Bernie, so it helps him a little bit, but not overwhelmingly. All right. Well, let's take a look at some of the results locally. Uh, in the California presidential primary, Bernie Sanders continues to lead with 34%, Joe Biden at 25%, Bloomberg at 14 and Warren at 12 both below the 15% threshold at this point, with many outstanding votes to be counted, uh, the 15% threshold to get any delegates proportionally coming out of the California primary. Um, Proposition 13, which is the statewide bond measure for local schools. Uh, That uh, still trailing 55% no on that ballot proposition. Fernando, your thoughts on why that seems to be failing? Well, I don't think it was explained very well. There were so many different narratives going on regarding the presidential. Very few people actually knew about it and what it meant. Um, I do believe as more votes are counted, it will tighten up. It might get close, uh, but I don't know that uh, it's going to be able to be uh, victorious. But I do believe that it won't be 55% no at the end of the day. It may be around 51%, but it's going to be close still. There are a lot of ballots still to count. Uh, In the L.A. County District Attorney's race this far from settled, Jackie Lacey is holding on to a razor-thin 50%-plus margin with George Gascon, a former San Francisco DA, former uh, assistant police chief in LAPD with 27%, Rachel Rossi, public defender at 23%. Uh, So I know that your exit polling uh, there with your students, Fernando, you showed this is going to arrive runoff between Lacey and Gascon? Yes, I'm pretty confident that uh, when all ballots are counted, that uh, um, current incumbent District Attorney Lacey will be under the 50% threshold, and she will be forced into a runoff in November with Gascon. Also, it's been a very impressive race for Rossi. I think she's way overperformed the expectation of many of us who observe this these type of elections. Uh, very impressed with her uh, performance. At Even this point, in third. Yeah, but at this point, is your saying she has nearly as many votes as George Gascon, who spent a lot of money. Yeah, and it could it is po- theoretically possible that she could still come in second. I don't think so, but theoretically it is possible for her to come in second. So this uh, and and if you add together Gascon and and Rossi, that's fifty percent. Lacey is sitting at fifty percent. Safe to say we'd likely have a close race in November. Yeah, it's never good for an incumbent uh, in these type of nonpartisan elections when they don't win outright in the um, in the primary. It indicates that there are over 50 percent of the voters who weren't willing to say yes right away. Um, everything is not lost for Lacey. I think she will be, in my estimation, the front runner. But a lot of things can happen. It will be a much greater turnout in November, much more progressive, much more democratic. And that could spell trouble for her. Well, and and um, speaking of candidates holding on with just over 50 percent trying to avoid a runoff, that's happening with the L.A. City Council District 14. 
14 in northeast L.A., where Kevin DeLeon uh, is sitting over 50 percent at this point. Does your exit polling show him hold off and avoid a runoff? Because there are a lot of other candidates in that race. Right. Um, no, we don't. We didn't ask that question because we didn't have a random sample in that district. Okay. We're not able to uh, comment on that. But again, um, the, you're going to see it. Uh, we still have a significant number of ballots, uh, and it all depends on where those ballots are coming from and what the trend is. All right. So there could still be a runoff. I was a little surprised um, that uh, Monica Garcia ran so low in that race because she has some name recognition. Well, you know, that's interesting. We actually did do a pre-election poll because we were uh, um, interviewing residents of downtown Los Angeles, uh, let's say almost like six months ago. It wasn't really an election poll, but her name ID was really low uh, to a shocking extent. And, you know, she's been a great board member on the Board of Education. All of us who uh, pay attention to politics understand she was president of the board for many of those years. And high profile in that position. Yeah. And so, but it, it didn't, uh, her name didn't resonate, and I, I was a little bit surprised by that. All right. L.A. County Board of Supervisors, this clearly will be a runoff between Herb Wesson, L.A. City Councilman, former president of the council, and Holly Mitchell, state senator, uh, both of these uh, who have high profiles in this district that Mark Ridley Thomas has represented. He's, of course, running for city council as they do musical political uh, chairs here. But Wesson and Mitchell, Wesson in the lead right now. But again, I would expect this to be pretty close in November. What do you think? Yes. And, you know, they're going to be two high powered elected officials who are going to have a lot of support and they're going to be able to raise uh, a lot of money for their own uh, um, campaigns. But you also expect a lot of independent expenditures uh, that will be spent. So uh, expect a lot of mail if you live in the second supervisorial district. Expect a lot of billboards. Uh, this is going to be a, a barn burner all the way till November. And and it's interesting, Fernando, as uh, as a percentage, the African-American population of Los Angeles has dropped that still this very powerful position, one of only five supervisors with huge constituencies, um, will remain an African-American representative district um you know this this is not unique in los angeles um there i i cannot think of a single african-american elected official who doesn't represent more latinos than african-americans not only in terms of population sometimes in terms of registered voters and sometimes even in terms of voters our analysis of the second district in the 2018 election showed that there were actually more Latino voters who actually came out to vote than African-American. And this is why you have to give a lot of credit to the African-American elected officials who really reached out and been responsive to their Latino constituents that they keep getting reelected. Uh, district 4 L.A. City Council, David Rue, the incumbent, sitting uh, several percentage points below the threshold to avoid the runoff. Nithya Raman, uh, seven percentage points behind him. They're at 46 and 39, respectively. What's going on in that race? You know, I see the 4th District as the least uh, uh, coherent or homogeneous district in all of uh, of the 50 council, 15 council districts in Los Angeles. If you take a look at the map, it is really has some strange boundaries. And there are very many communities. Oftentimes we think of L.A. as many communities that make up the city. You can think of that also for every single council district that there's at least three or four major ones. In this district, 
it goes from the valley to the west side, almost all the way to the east side. It is a it doesn't have an overall identity, and that makes itself uh, really prone for this type of a challenge. So I'm not surprised that uh, you had uh, 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 the the desperate vote of many for many candidates, and that it kept Council Member Rue below 50 percent. You've also got, and that's certainly far from the only district with a serious uh, problem with homelessness. But mm-hmm. um, you know that critique any challenger of any of these LA City Council seats. Right. It's going to be able to go after the incumbent on that issue. Yeah, that's right. That is the number one issue for Angelinos today. Yes, climate change is important, education, et cetera, but the most visible issue of income inequality and uh, housing affordability and the problem with rents is homelessness. It's in your face that there is a problem and that it's getting worse. In the 10th District, we were talking earlier about outgoing county supervisor Mark Ridley-Thomas running for what had been Herb Wesson's seat. Are you surprised he's sitting at 46 percent and and looks uh, primed for a runoff? No, not at all, because... Uh, while Mark Ridley-Thomas has been a great public servant, again, the demographic shifts that have been occurring, especially in the 10th District, where you have a very high a Korean population and a very high Latino population, and that you, you saw both a Korean candidate and a Latino candidate take a lot of votes. Um, and so uh, I'm not, I, I thought it was going to be close for him in terms of getting over to 50%, uh, but I, I would have anticipated either I'm not surprised by it, and I wouldn't have been surprised had he been over 50 All right. Still many, many votes to be counted in Los Angeles County, by the way, in the 25th Congressional District of North L.A. County, the seat that Katie Hill has resigned from. Christy Smith, the Democrat, has 34 percent. Mike Garcia, Republican, with 27 percent. They're the leaders to go to the runoff. And in the 50th Congressional District, San Diego County, which Duncan Hunter and his dad before that represented that district, Democrat Amar Kampanajar with 34 percent. Uh, former Congressman, Republican Daryl Issa, second, 25 percent, and Republican Carl DeMaio with 21 percent in uh, that closely watched congressional race to see if Democrats are able to flip that red district. Thank you so much, Fernando. We'll have coffee and a bagel for you tomorrow morning, I promise. Or to it. Okay, thanks. We'll see you then. Fernando Guerra. Loyola Marymount University, professor of political science in Chicano Latino studies. He directs the Center for the Study of Los Angeles. Tomorrow morning at 10, he'll be with us for our special live hour. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Hope your day's going well. Nice when I came in this morning. Hopefully, I haven't stepped outside since, but hopefully it's still a beautiful day. And we're so pleased to have you with us where multiple topics are on tap in this hour. A little bit later on, we'll talk about whether the smell of marijuana coming from a car provides probable cause for law enforcement officers to be able to search the vehicle. We have an appellate case out of Northern California that speaks to that question. Also coming up a little bit later, should hotel chains be financially liable for prostitution that takes place on the premises 
of their franchisee hotels. We'll talk about lawsuits that have been filed against multiple hotel chains seeking to hold them financially liable in those cases. But we begin with the economic effects of the novel coronavirus uh, that uh, is affecting so many different industries. Today, we heard from uh, the International Air Transport Association that as much as $113 billion in lost revenue could be the uh, future for airlines uh, here in the United States. Southwest just cut its revenue expectations for the quarter by $200 million to $300 million. The company said in its regulatory filing today, in recent days, the company has experienced a significant decline in customer demand as well as an increase in trip cancellations, which is assumed to be attributable to concerns relating to reported cases of COVID-19. Struggling British airline Flybe collapsed today as the outbreak uh, quashed their ticket sales. Uh, But that's just one aspect of uh, you know business that has been strongly affected by COVID-19. Writing on this issue is Justin Lehart, Wall Street Journal reporter who focuses on financial markets, policy, and the overall economy. Justin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, let's start first with what's going on with the stock market. Yesterday was a very good day for the market, whether as Bernie Sanders said it was because um, the market was happy that Joe Biden did well on Super Tuesday or or whether it was the rate cut from the Fed. But now today the market's back down again. Where do we stand? Yeah, uh, at the moment, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down about a thousand points. So that pretty much erases yesterday. Um, and we've just seen tremendous volatility um, over the last week. And it, it's really, you know, just underscores the uncertainty that investors have about what's happening here. And uh, what are the sectors that investors are most closely watching for the effects of COVID-19? Well, I think, you know, right now, you know, there's been a lot of focus on the travel sector, on cruise lines and, 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 and what have you. Um, there are a lot of concerns about uh, supply chain effects, uh, especially from companies that are dependent on goods from China. But this is something that uh, could really reach any company. Um, and you know, I think that that's really you know, part of the confusion. And you know, people, you know, when it comes down to it, they don't know what's going to happen to the economy. They don't know what's going to happen to earnings. And that makes it very hard to value stocks and to figure out what the appropriate level is. We also have companies based in the Pacific Northwest who've told their employees to work from home. Um, Amazon made that announcement. Uh, Microsoft asked its Seattle area workers who can work at home to do so uh, until March 25th. Is that thought to have a negative effect on productivity, Justin? Um. Like you know, it will depend on the company. Um, not all companies, uh, not all businesses have the ability to have their workers work from home. Um, so, in, in in some respects, um, you know, those companies are are lucky. Um, but that's not something that your local coffee shop could do. Um, that's not something that a manufacturer can do. Um, 
and it, it will have, you know, that in itself will have an effect. If downtowns are emptied out, then all the businesses that depend on those workers are going to suffer. You've been talking to epidemiologists as a part of your work to to look at the market's reaction and different sectors' reaction to to the virus. What are you hearing from those health experts? Well, I think the first thing is that um, a lot of the assumptions um, that that people on Wall Street were making, um, you know, in earlier stages here, were assumptions that epidemiologists um, simply weren't. Um, you know, a belief that that the spread was slowing um, based on case count numbers coming in from China, um, a belief that the that the number of cases um, that there would be sort of a bell curve straight to that uh, shape to that. That's something that you know epidemiologists um, you know said you know wouldn't necessarily happen. Um, but they still, you know, there are some big questions about this. Um, when it comes right down to it, um, people, we don't know how many people have been infected with the virus. And without knowing that, it's difficult to know. You can't know the actual fatality rate. And um, you can't uh, understand its transmissibility. At least, you know, that's my understanding from, from talking to epidemiologists. And that makes it very hard to put any sort of you know, risk assessment um, on this if you're an investor. We were talking last hour about what appears to be the slowing expansion of coronavirus in China, where they've taken such drastic measures to try and contain it. But nonetheless, it is still growing, even though the pace seems to have declined. Yeah, so... Again, this is I'm not an epidemiologist, but you know, my understanding is that that you know, and the the WHO says it, it, you know, that's real, that's not sort of an artifact of numbers or you know or, or anything like that. Um you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that um China t- took drastic measures. Um measures that we in this country um couldn't take to halt the spread of this virus. And one concern is um as those measures are relaxed, um, will there be, you know, fresh outbreaks? Um, you know, it, it will take time for uh, China to get back to business. Uh, that's one of the things that's going to affect the U.S. economy. We're talking with Justin Lehart, Wall Street Journal reporter who focuses on financial markets, policy, and the economy. He writes the long-running investing column, Heard on the Street, as well. Uh, If you want to weigh in with the particular area of business you work in, what you're seeing in your sector, that would be great. We're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. We're also hearing that there's a slow down at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach as a result of what's going on in China and the decrease in exports there. Have you been able to quantify that, Justin? Um, No, at this point, you know, I've mostly just heard anecdotal evidence. I I guess that there there must be some hard evidence coming from the ports right now. Um, You know, we haven't seen the, the the latest container numbers, but I also understand that there are 
because of a lack of containers, that there are some um, outgoing uh, exports that are that are that aren't happening. Well, that's interesting because uh, with the. Um you know, with the trade imbalance, we've sent so many empty containers back. And so it sounds like that there's a shortage now that it that would indicate a pretty significant shift. That's yeah, I guess, I mean, again, this is it's that's that's, you know, not something that I've, I've delved into it. Yeah, that I, you know, came across. All right. Uh, Justin, um, finally, you know, if you could predict the market, you'd you'd um, you'd retire from the journal and live off of your investment earnings. But um, what is the sense of people you talk to about this extreme volatility and how long they anticipate this going? Um, you know, I guess it really depends on the person. Um, again, um, you know, investors aren't any better at, at, at predicting what's going to happen here than, than anyone else. One thing that does seem clear is that, that earnings um, really are at risk. Um, people will, were hoping that after a year of basically no earnings growth that there would be a revival um, in, in earnings growth this year. That seems less and less likely to happen, and, and the risk is, is that earnings um, actually fall. I mean, the, the wider risk is that there is a recession. All right. Justin, thank you. We'll hope that doesn't happen. Justin Layhart, Wall Street Journal reporter, joining us on Air Talk. Also with us is business columnist for the Orange County Register, Jonathan Lansner, uh, who's been writing about uh, the housing market and its response to coronavirus. Jonathan, thank you for being with us. Um, I mean, one thing certainly to the benefit of, of home sellers and home buyers is record low mortgage interest rates. That, that's on the positive side oh certainly uh you know there is cheap money out there and also uh you know we've seen p- the past year willing lenders too so uh if you are in the market currently to buy uh if you're thinking about a refinance these are pretty good times to do that but i think it's one of those be careful what you wish for moments because you have to look at the underlying reason many of those uh, justin uh, summarized uh, quite nicely why rates are down and while we like to talk a lot about real estate, about whether it's mortgage rates or the supply of housing or the demand for housing, to me, uh, housing is all about three words, jobs, jobs, jobs. And uh, the job count, both in Southern California, uh, statewide and nationally, even globally, is going to be taxed by this virus. And that cannot be good uh, for housing. But it sounds like we're not seeing anything statistically yet. The the virus concerns about it are, are too new for that to show up? Well, when you think about some of the news, we've heard anecdotally, and I'm not a big fan of anecdotes, but we know, for example, a lot of trade shows are being canceled. Just this week, a major trade show on, from the food industry was canceled in Anaheim. We've heard a lot of technology shows have been uh, canceled. Uh, lawyers were supposed to meet with the ABA uh, next week in uh, San Diego. That's been canceled. Uh, so if you are in the tourism business, uh, it's hurting. Uh, those people have jobs that are probably not either being assigned or less, you know, hours being assigned to those people. Uh, that That's a negative uh, right off the bat. Uh, you know, in the tourism business, particularly in Southern California, is a huge business. So you're seeing that right off there. Anyone who's trying to import goods uh, from Asia, particularly China, probably has a lack of either finished product or supplies to make products here. And that's going to slow down manufacturing uh, sooner rather than later, um, you know. So I think in those cases, uh, you know, 
those are things that are tangible in the market right now. Um, and then, you know, to buy a home, particularly in California, you've got to have a lot of confidence uh, in the economy. And uh, none of this, whether you think this is a short-term hic- hiccup or a long-running problem to come, uh, makes you more confident uh, and certainly not confident to buy a home. I'm not saying that we've seen it yet. I think the initial reaction to the housing market will be a positive because people look at these uh, cheap mortgages and either close the deal that they have in process or go out and, you know, snatch up one before uh, either A, uh, their the rates change if things improve, or <laughs> oddly enough, on the flip side, they lose their job, but they've at least gotten a home. All right. Uh, Jonathan Lansner of the Orange County Register, business columnist, thanks so much for talking with us about coronavirus, its potential effect on the housing market. Ellen Burbank, good to have you with us on Air Talk. Hi, Larry. Hi. So uh, what line of business are you in? What are you seeing as the coronavirus effect? Um, so, so far, I'm in the spice business um, called Mom Cave Foods, and we are an online spice blend company, and we are growing really fast. And the only effect right now it's had on me is the packaging, which we get from China, from Guangzhou. And we are in contact with our suppliers. Um, we are really running low, and um, we can't. We tried to email them. What's up, them? You know, we're really worried about them, but we also want to do business. And so we've actually had to look into local um, packaging and change our entire packaging model. What what have been the cost implications of that for your company? Huge. We would go from like 15 cent packaging to $1.25. Wow. Wow. So good for the local business that sells it, but but tough on your bottom line. Ella, thank you. I appreciate your sharing that. Adam in Pasadena says, I work in real estate. Uh, we're seeing a sizable decline in the number of buyers coming from China in downtown in particular. Big downturn. Also Pasadena and throughout the San Gabriel Valley. All right. Well, thank you for sharing your comments. We appreciate it as we look at the economic effects of COVID-19, the coronavirus. Coming up, we'll take a look at whether hotel chains should be legally liable for prostitution that's carried out on the premises of their franchisee hotels. There have been a number of lawsuits filed by women who claim they were trafficked through the hotels and that the chains should be held financially responsible. We'll talk about the legal arguments in that case in just one minute on Air Talk. Coming up, we'll talk about marijuana in the car and whether the smell of marijuana gives law enforcement the right to search the vehicle. We have an important decision coming from an appellate court in Northern California. It'll be the focus of our conversation. But first, it's another legal issue, and that is whether major hotel chains uh, bear financial responsibility for prostitution that takes place 
on the premises of uh, properties that use their name, where there are franchises uh, that are operating. The hotel chains named in the suits include Hilton, Marriott, Wyndham, Choice Hotels International. The lawsuits have been filed by women who claim that they were sex trafficked through different hotel properties, that hotel employees did nothing to report the activity or to attempt to stop the abuse of the women. Joining us is Shan Wu, a former federal prosecutor uh, with a law firm in Washington, D.C., which includes the practice of white-collar crimes. Uh, Mr. Wu, thank you for being with us. Um, Do you think that there is a case to be made that these chains could be held legally accountable? Uh, I do. The uh, particular section of the uh, Human Trafficking Act specifically allows for uh, liability and recovery for people who are harboring uh, this type of sex trafficking uh, conspiracy, as well as people who are receiving the benefits financially. And of course, it's that last aspect, uh, which would be most troubling for the hotels. And I think, you know, for the hotels, the issue is just being on the right side of history here. I mean, there can't be any question as to whether this is a you know proper, improper thing to do. And it's a question of really the proof issues. In the lawsuits that have been filed, the facts are just very bad. It seems very blatant that the hotel staff must have known what's going on. So I think that's what the problem is for them. Legally, it's really, as always, a question of what evidence would meet the statute. Well, and how would the hotel workers determine whether someone is being trafficked, pimped, um, and and uh, forced to do this versus someone who's uh, meeting customers at a hotel and engaging in fully consensual sex work. Right. So two things there. We'll take the gray area first, which is uh, prostitution. So meeting the customers is still illegal in most places. So that in and of itself would be problematic. The hotel, I would imagine, would not want that kind of activity going on their premises. And when there is prostitution, there's going to be the natural question of, is this potentially sex trafficking, which really by definition from a legal and moral standpoint, it, it really is. And how would they know about it? Well, when I was a sex crimes prosecutor, it was very well known um, on the part of the sex industry workers, as well as the police, which hotels frequently allowed this. There were hotels that were tolerant of it and hotels that weren't. And so, for example, the front desk is going to see relatively heavy traffic of people going in and out who are not customers, uh, guests staying at the hotel. They're customers of the sex industry going on. Also, the hotel workers cleaning people, for example, are frankly going to find uh, evidence of sex trafficking going on. They're going to be, you know, use condoms, for example, be a little bit clinical about it, but they'll find evidence of that nature. Yeah, but but guests leave behind condoms too, right? So guests leave behind condoms too, right? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, However, the sheer volume in those cases uh, is going to be you know rather unusual for that. And then, in addition to that, just in in these particular lawsuits that have been filed, there are actual allegations of the hotel workers or hotel management of the local sites seeing evidence of the survivors having been physically harmed and in some cases survivors asking 
for help. So that, of course, is you know, very difficult evidence to, to overcome in terms of the knowledge. All right. And um, so is it in these lawsuits, was it is it alleged that what the hotel should have done is called police about this activity? And if hotel operators do that, are they potentially at risk of being sued for reporting someone's going to claim I wasn't engaging in prostitution and, and you're discriminating against me and filing a false report? Uh, these lawsuits don't really specifically say what actions that the hotels should have taken, uh, but rather simply accuses them of being part of conspiracy and benefiting from this financially. With regard to that risk question, I, I think there is some risk of that. Uh, if the police come knocking at a guest's door and they say hey, we're investigating you know, allegations of sex trafficking, the guests may indeed be quite offended by it. However, the risk management, I mean, I don't represent the hotel industry, <laughs> but from a risk management standpoint, that is a far smaller risk. And most guests would understand if it was explained to them that you know we are concerned about this bad issue. It's a much smaller risk that that guest individually is going to sue the hotel over some privacy or defamation action than it is to have this industry-wide phenomenon going on where there's going to be a criminal crackdown on hotels, as well as just waves of lawsuits. That's a much bigger problem for them, really. We're talking with Shan Wu, former federal prosecutor and so a law firm in Washington, D.C. Also with us is labor and employ- uh, employment attorney based in Los Angeles, Travis Gamotes. Uh, thank you for being with us, Travis. Um, so do you think that um, it's fair that these hotel chains should be held accountable for prostitutes or sex trafficking on their premises. Thank you, Larry. Let's let's be very clear. First of all, human trafficking, it is an urgent, it's a growing global problem, and it affects some of the most vulnerable mem- members of our society. And we need to devote all of our available resources to stop its spread and to help those victimized by it. Now, um, you know, statistics show over 80% of trafficking victims come in contact with healthcare providers during their trafficking events. We, we've heard stories of victims who, uh, who are observed at a restaurant or a flight attendant on a major airline who they, they see something and they, 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 they call out to the authorities and the situation is averted. Hotels uh, are also uh, in, in, that, in that front line. What, uh, and I do represent many, um, many hotel operators and owners. What we have done is is, uh, is increasingly mandated training for our uh, for the hotel employees so that they know how to recognize signs of potential human trafficking situations so that they can alert proper authorities, um, either law enforcement organizations um, or, um, or nonprofits such as the National Human Trafficking Hotline, so that they're armed with, uh, with a, you know, to, to know what to look for and uh, to know what steps would be appropriate given the circumstances. How, do, how are they trained to differentiate between uh, someone who is being trafficked and can't escape the the situation versus someone who's just meeting customers at the hotel. How do they or, or do they not have to differentiate between it? Are they just expected to report if someone if they perceive someone is selling sex on premises? Well, and, and, and Larry, you bring up an excellent point. You know, the, the law that we're talking about specifically refers to trafficking victims. It's the Trafficking Victims Protection uh, Reauthorization Act. 
And uh, while, while prostitution is certainly illegal uh, in, uh, in almost all jurisdictions, um, it, you know, this law addresses trafficking situations. And so, and there is, there is definitely a difference between what, um, you know, what would be described as, as consensual versus, uh, you know, the crime, uh, you know, the federal crime of trafficking. And it is, it is sometimes, you know, the, the, the telltale uh, signs of, uh, you know, of, 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 of some sort of, of you know, sexual activity happening doesn't in any way necessarily indicate that trafficking has occurred. But there are signs that, that, um, that, that hotel employees can be trained to look for specifically for trafficking situations where a victim is being forced against their will, uh, where they are, uh, where where they are victimized, where there there might be physical uh, violence or threats that that are keeping them, uh, you know, in that situation. So th- so certain certainly certain signs can be can be detected, and and there there can be training to that. Simply, you know, f- you know the fact that the, you m- might find detritus uh, evident- evidencing a uh, sexual encounter, use condoms, lubricant, you know, sheets. That that does not in and of itself uh, indicate that there has been a trafficking situation. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out just from a practical standpoint how how hotels would be expected to deal with. I mean, if it's obvious, like as is alleged in some of these lawsuits, physical abuse and that hotel employees witnessed people being being, you know, physically struck or I mean, that that's pretty clear. But that would be the case if anybody is physically assaulted on the premises. I would think if a hotel employee witnessed that they would be expected to report that to hotel management. But let's take a listener call. Joshua in North Hills. Good to have you with us on AirTalk. What do you think? Yeah, my, my comment, uh, qu- sorry, question for um, uh, the... Yeah, just go right to it. Yeah, um, I think this this would... Um, uh, prostitution is going to... Uh, uh, trafficking and, and prostitution, they're, they're, they're things that are unfortunate that they're, they're going to happen regardless of how many preventative measures we have. And I feel like this will cause potential victims to not have the sanitary and uh, comforts of a hotel. And they'll do this activity, illegal activity in more dangerous places, unsanitary places, unsafe spaces. And uh, the only people who are going to be damaged by this uh, won't, won't be their, their um, attackers or their uh, kidnappers will be the victims themselves. My question is, um what will you will you do to to promise that these type of things won't happen well i yeah and i don't think anyone could guarantee that joshua but shan uh wu um what about unintended consequences where trafficking is carried out in more dangerous locations than hotels uh, I think that's a very valid concern, and of course, it goes to a bigger question of whether there should be, frankly, legalization of prostitution, some sort of regulation and oversight over it. I think the difficulty here, you know, with all due respect to Travis's distinction, I mean, the hotels cannot be in a position where they're going to say, well, we welcome uh, legitimate prostitution, but we want to learn to distinguish as to trafficking. I think, you know, morally and legally, that those are really going to be combined in the future. I mean, there are very strong arguments that there is no such thing as a consenting adult going into sex trade. But that's a philosophical perspective. That's not, you can't prove that one way. That's, that's an opinion. So you, you can't really make law based on that, right? Uh, well, no, you can't. For example, let's look at the more obvious issue of uh, younger people. Okay. Underage, obviously no brainer there. 
But one of the issues with the sex trafficking is oftentimes you have people who are of a legal age, but the economic circumstances are forcing them into that. So I think that's a very real issue. It's but not- there are all kinds of jobs people are economically forced into, not just sex work. But anyway, uh, let's take listener calls. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, Travis Gamotes, what do you think are the odds here that the hotel chains can fend this off? Uh, or, or do you think ultimately they are vulnerable here? for what takes place on their premises. Well, let's look at, you know, the statute is very clear. The statute was meant to uh, to impose civil liability on those who profit from human trafficking, those who had actual knowledge uh, that human trafficking was occurring or imputed knowledge. It was meant to punish human traffickers by allowing their victims to sue them in civil court for the harm that these traffickers have caused their victims. It's quite a stretch uh, in these lawsuits. And in, for, in fact, federal uh, courts have dismissed the hotel chains, you know, to, to hold to hold the Marriotts and the Hiltons of, of the world responsible, uh, you know, on a corporate level for for what what might have happened, you know, at at, at one of their uh, you know a branded hotel or perhaps uh, perhaps a franchise uh, is 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 a stretch, and and it really is is going beyond what what this law was was meant to uh, to to prevent. Um, and you know, and, and as noted, you know, federal courts have agreed with that. Obviously, I think if you if you go down to the micro level and you have a, you know an operator of a of a hotel, uh, you know who who knows what's going on, you know who's happy to collect uh, to collect this money in, in in clear trafficking situations, you know th- you know not to, not to say that 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 a that a hotel uh, owner should be immune from from pro- from uh, from uh, from liability under the statute. Um, um, but um, but it's going w- way too far afield, and the courts have agreed to hold to hold these these parent companies liable for 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 what might be happening at some some rogue um, property uh, is is uh, is not what this law was meant to. Uh, what about in extreme circumstances, though? Like you know, Shan's describing. Um, employees seeing people physically victimized. Um, it's clear that there is a criminal operation being run out of uh, rooms at a hotel. Is is there no liability in cases like that? Well, this is where I think the training comes in, and where the training is so important, um, because you know not only are are these major hotel chains, but um, you know insurance companies that uh, that cater to the hotel industry, they're starting to to recognize that uh, that hotels that you know are uh, often in the front lines uh, in this battle to to uh, to stop human trafficking, and they they've mandated that uh, that the, that this training occurs. You know, like you say, it's it's uh, it's it's very diff- difficult sometimes to. Dis- Concern between you know consensual uh, sex and and a true trafficking situation. Obviously, when you've got a situation where there there might be you know a second person who is uh, who who is, is presiding in in the uh, you know hovering around the hotel to make sure that that uh, that the human trafficking victim doesn't escape or doesn't go out. I mean, there there are certain signs that can be trained, and so I think that's that's okay. really where 
where the where this should go as as far as you know increasing the awareness to 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 stop this horrible problem. Let me add a bunch of listener comments that have come in. Cam writes on the AirTalk page: If full service sex work were to be decriminalized, then victims of human trafficking would be able to come forward without fearing the police. Thank you for pointing out that many people do this consensually. Please ask your guest if he thinks poor, young poor people working at McDonald's are working consensually. Sex workers make much more and set their own hours. Rob writes on the page, there's prostitution in condominiums, apartments, and houses all over. That's where it'll go. Iban writes on the page, sex trafficking equals bad, prostitution equals not bad. And uh, you can share your comments on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. My thanks to our guest, former federal prosecutor and attorney in private practice, Shan Wu, and Travis Gamotes, labor and employment attorney in private Private practice in Los Angeles. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. Coming up, we'll talk about an important appellate court decision from Northern California over what the odor of marijuana inside a vehicle does or doesn't allow police officers to use as a pretext for searching a vehicle. We'll be back in just a minute on Air Talk. Tomorrow morning, our 10 o'clock hour of Air Talk comes your way live from our Crawford Family Forum. I'll be joined by KPCC politics reporter Libby Dankman and a whole group of political scientists from local universities. They'll be opining on the Super Tuesday and California primary results. We look forward to having you in the audience. There are seats available. You just need to reserve one for yourself by visiting kpcc.org slash in person. You can can make your reservation now to join us tomorrow morning at 10 here at KPECC. I just want to take a moment in this final segment to thank our wonderful AirTalk producing team. Uh, with this election week, the hours they've worked, uh, the the quality of their work has just been extraordinary. And I am so deeply indebted to the great team uh, that supports this show each and every day. They're led by senior producer Fiona Ng. Our producers are Matt D'Angelo-Antonio, Nat Natalie Chudnovsky and Lindsay Wright. Itzi Quintanilla also helping us this week as a producer. And our news apprentices, Sabrina Fang and Julia Murray. Our engineer is Parker McDaniels. Sean Campbell also helping us on the technical side this week. My deep appreciation to simply the best group of producers you will find anywhere. They are all stars. Well, the Alameda County Superior Court has ruled that the odor coming from a car stopped in Berkeley was not enough to justify a full vehicle search. What the police officers described was the smell of marijuana. What the search um, that they undertook based on that smell yielded was a loaded handgun. This uh, rather precedent-setting ruling following Proposition 64, which legalized the use of recreational cannabis. With us to talk about the case and uh, what limits are on law enforcement officers when they smell cannabis is Krista Wasserman, who's a litigator in private practice in Los Angeles. Thank you very much, Ms. Wasserman, for joining us. Um, 
When it comes to alcohol, um, if a law enforcement officer smells alcohol in the vehicle, does that open up the door for uh, a potential search of the car? You know, Larry, it can. Um, And this is actually a great opportunity to sort of lay out very briefly um, the background rules that govern driving with cannabis. Yeah, yeah, good. They're really very similar to laws that govern alcohol. Um, So it's illegal to drive under the influence of cannabis. I think no surprise there. Um, It's also illegal for a passenger to smoke cannabis while they're riding in a car with you. Um, And it's also illegal to possess an open container of cannabis while you're driving. So what it's legal to do is for somebody who's over the age of 21 to possess and transport up to 28.5 grams of cannabis. So in some ways, very similar to the way that alcohol is regulated. And the court in this recent decision even notes that the regulation of those two substances at least in terms of what you can and can't do in a car, is quite similar. Now, in alcohol, it's my understanding that if you have a bottle of alcohol in the vehicle um, that's that's reachable by a, a passenger or driver, it's got to be a sealed, unopened container. It can't just be closed. Is that also true with cannabis, that it has to be in a, that there is a noticeable seal on it, like with a bottle of booze? That's actually a great question, and it's um, a lot of what this new decision turns on. So in this case, um, the court is interpreting a portion of the California Vehicle Code that talks about whether cannabis has to be in a sealed container or just in a closed container. And in this case, involving loose cannabis flour, the court concluded that the flour at issue only had to be in a closed but not sealed container. So that's-, that's interesting. Why would they make it, do you think, more liberal for cannabis than for alcohol? You know, that's really something that comes directly from the text of Proposition 64. And in construing statutes, courts need to you know, stick to the plain language of the statute unless there's some reason not to do so. And so it's just drawn directly from the text of that legislation. All right. So in this case, where the officers undertook the search of the vehicle, they found the loaded handgun, um, the court determined that this this was not proper because it was it was not sufficient just to smell cannabis. That's right. And I think it was a little bit, you know, there was a little bit more reasoning there. So at issue here, there was the smell of what the officer said. There was burnt cannabis and, you know, fresh cannabis. But the officer also conceded herself that the smell of cannabis, even if not being smoked in a car or in an open container, can linger for a week or more. Um, So I, I think that the court was looking to the fact that there there are reasons that a car might smell like cannabis that have nothing to do with violating California law. All right. If you have questions for our guests, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. I had no idea that um, combusted cannabis, the smell can linger for a week since the last time a uh, joint was lit. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. It's a chance for you to ask questions or share your perspective uh, on this. Uh, Obviously, um, at issue is someone driving under the influence of a substance. But the other issue is, does that open up the door for a police search of the vehicle? Krista, if you've got someone uh, police suspect is driving under the influence of alcohol, the officer smells on the driver's breath booze. 
does that open up the door for the vehicle to be searched, or is that a separate issue than having probable cause that, that you know, there's contraband in the vehicle? You know, it may be a separate issue. Um, probable cause really has to be reasonable basis to believe a crime may have been committed. So it's very fact-dependent. Um, and the, the case here, um, there wasn't probable cause because there wasn't probable cause to believe there was a, a separate crime being committed. Um, but one of the cases that this newer case cites, it's a case called People Be the Fuse, um, there was probable cause to do additional cases, or excuse me, to do additional searches because the driver in that case was driving erratically. There was visible cannabis in the car. Um, the driver acted strangely during the stop. And so there are a lot of facts that go into these sorts of determinations that courts make. I'm still kind of stuck on the earlier thing we're talking about, that it just has to be a closed container, because I'm thinking if someone's driving along and has edibles, you know, sitting in the center console, just, you know, with a lid on a container that could be popped open and edible popped in the mouth, that that would seem very much the same thing as someone driving with, uh, you know, a bottle of whiskey that they could just unscrew the top and, and you know, take a slug. I, I just, I, it's weird. I don't see the difference there. But I'd love to hear from listeners. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Krista, if someone um, is is spotted by an officer smoking a joint in a car, um, does that open up the door for the car to be searched? Or can the officer only deal with the direct issue of the consumption of cannabis? It it certainly might open the door for additional searches. But, you know, unfortunately, it's hard to give a yes or no answer in these situations because it is so fact dependent. Um, But going back to your prior, you know, comment about being able to, you know, have an edible in your center console. I think it's really important to look at the language in this decision that is, the decision is limited to decisions concerning loose cannabis flower. And the court itself um, distinguishes between that and the more general term cannabis in Proposition 64. Um, and, and the court itself says, you know, it's the rationale for distinguishing between loose cannabis flower and other forms is unclear to the court but the court's just sticking to what the plain language of the regulations and the text of the statute is. Um, So I think folks who are in the business of either using cannabis for personal use or transporting cannabis as part of a business, it's so important for them to very carefully go through what the statutes require, what the regulations require, and to really take a lot of precautions and be careful because Words here matter, and little differences between things will matter, um, and, and folks need to know their rights. Coming up, uh, in addition to Krista Wasserman, our guest Los Angeles-based attorney, we'll be talking with the legal director for the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, Normal as it's known. Keith Strop will be with us. We'll continue our conversation in just one minute right here on Air Talk. Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. We're talking about a case from Alameda County Superior Court involving a vehicle stop in Berkeley in which uh, police said they smelled cannabis, uh, then undertook a search of the car and found a loaded handgun in the vehicle for which the driver was charged. But the uh, Superior Court 
ruled that uh, that was not a legal search of the vehicle because uh, just the smell of cannabis in the car is no indication that cannabis was being used at the time. I'd like to hear from you, your thoughts about this, or any questions that you have about legal or illegal use of recreational marijuana. We're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Also with us, I mentioned, from the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, known as Normal Legal Director Keith Strop. Keith, appreciate your, your being with us. You think the court got it right this time, I assume. Uh, well, I do. And indeed, uh, there are at least four other states who have, within the last few months, reached a similar decision. Let me make a minor correction, Larry, if I could. Yes. It wasn't the Superior Court that threw out the search. It was your Court of Appeal. Excuse me. Originally went through this. Yes, you're right. It was the appellate uh, court. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Uh, but again, as I say, people need to keep in mind that the general rule, because of the Fourth Amendment that protects us against unreasonable search and seizures, uh, the police either have to have a valid search warrant before they search, or they, they the search has to fit in um, a handful of well-recognized judicial exceptions. And one of those exceptions for almost 100 years has been if the police believe they smell marijuana or any other illegal substance they could identify when they pull a car over, then the courts have allowed them to search the passenger compartment of the car without a search warrant. They generally cannot search the trunk without a search warrant, or they cannot search a locked container that may be in the passenger compartment. But the search of the passenger compartment they've allowed on the basis that uh, the evidence may be destroyed if they're not allowed to search it in, in short order. Now, that may have made judicial sense uh, back when anytime you smell marijuana, it was a crime. Marijuana was illegal for all purposes and in all amounts. But as you know, there are now 33 states that have, allowed, that have legalized medical marijuana. There are 11 states in the District of Columbia that have legalized marijuana for all adults for recreational purposes. There's no way when a police officer pulls your car over and smells marijuana that he can tell whether you have less than the one or two ounces you're allowed to have under your state law or whether you have more than that amount, in which case it would become contraband and they would have the basis to search. So since they cannot tell, uh, this no longer fits within the recognized judicial exception to the requirement for a search warrant. Now, with alcohol, it's a legal substance. Um, It's legal, but it's illegal to drive under the influence of it or to have an open container in the passenger compartment of the vehicle. And would you see that the law, do you think it should treat booze and cannabis the same? Or do you think that there are, are differences that should come into play here? Well, uh, if there's evidence that the driver of the car is smoking while he's driving, then he's committing a crime, even under California's legalized marijuana law. And that's true in the other states that have legalized as well. Uh, But simply the smell of marijuana does not suggest that he was smoking in the car. It simply may be that he simply he had the allowable amount of marijuana in the car or has had in the last few days. Um, And as a result, uh, the officer smells marijuana. Let me point out one other problem with 
the the policy as it existed prior to this decision. Uh, law enforcement officers have been trained for decades now that when you pull a car over, if you're if you think the driver or the passengers look suspicious, then you always claim you smell marijuana because it allows you to search the passenger compartment to see if they're up to no good, even though uh, they may have been made up the part about smelling marijuana. I'm not suggesting most police lie, but there certainly are plenty of police who do lie about the smell of marijuana so they don't have to go get a search warrant. They can just uh, search the car on the spot. So in in a, a, a important way, what these decisions are doing is returning a, a bit of a right to privacy that we used to possess that we lost over the last few decades. So I think these decisions are terribly important. And over the next you know, decade or two decades, I suspect that every state in the country that has legalized marijuana, either for medical use or for recreational use, will reach a similar decision. Right now, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Vermont, and Colorado have all reached decisions similar to the one your Court of Appeals just handed down. We're talking with Attorney Keith Strop, Legal Director of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. They, for many years, have been advocates for the legalization of marijuana. I always wondered if Normal was going to go away when marijuana became legalized, but here they are, the uh, organization still operating. And Krista Wasserman, uh, attorney in private practice in Los Angeles joining us as well. Um, Keith, just to, to clarify here, um, if if alcohol is smelled in a vehicle, does that open up the door for a potential search of the passenger compartment or not? Well, if it were only the smell of alcohol without any evidence indicating the driver was intoxicated yeah. or had been drinking while in the car, no. Uh, okay. Would not have the right to search the automobile. So this brings cannabis into conformity with the rules on alcohol. Generally, that's right. It's it's difficult to make them absolutely parallel because with alcohol, uh, we've got a, a test readily available to tell if you if you're point oh eight or higher with alcohol. We presume that you're impaired. Right now, we really don't have a test that determines when you're impaired because of marijuana smoking, and we very badly need that test. Those of us who are responsible marijuana smokers, we want a test so that that if an officer pulls us over and thinks we're high on marijuana and shouldn't be driving, we want to be able to demonstrate that we're not. The fact that he may smell a little marijuana or I may have smoked marijuana over the weekend and it still shows up in my blood two or three or four or five days later, I'm certainly not still impaired. So one of the one of the the greatest needs in this area is the development of a test which would measure actual impairment, not simply the presence of THC in your system. All right. I want to thank both of you for being with us. Keith Strop of Normal, Krista Wasserman. Uh, who's handled civil and criminal cases at the state and federal levels, litigator in private practice, talking with us about the general rules on cannabis and driving. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you're able to be with us tomorrow morning at 10 
for our live in-person event at KPCC as we look at the results of the California primary, um, incomplete as they are, and Super Tuesday, what it means for the Democratic primary moving forward, as well as our local political races. RSVP, kpcc.org slash in-person. I hope to see you tomorrow morning at 10. And tomorrow morning at 11, Film Week comes your way here on 89.3. Fresh Air is next. Have a great afternoon.